I'm reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Thank you, Val. Good morning. I understand we threw some of you off by not having communion last week. We normally have it the fourth Sunday, but because this passage is about communion, we decided it's appropriate to have communion together today. What is this thing called communion? I was raised in a... uh, family that went to church only for a little while when I was really small to a Presbyterian church and we would take communion the Lord's table the Lord's Supper Eucharist whatever you call it it's same thing but we we would take it regularly and I didn't really understand it but I thought it was kind of cool to get a little piece of bread and a little juice to drink then we quit going later on when I came to Christ when I was 17 started going to a little Baptist church And we had our own version of communion. We did it there too. And I went to a non-denominational Bible church and we had communion once a month. Married into a Catholic family. And they have their own version of the Eucharist. I've been to many other churches throughout my life and one thing I've noticed, it's always part of the worship. You see, in churches that are followers of Jesus Christ, Whatever you call it, the Lord's Table, Communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, etc., all followers of Jesus Christ practice communion. There may be different explanations of how it works, what it means, but all true believers celebrate the Lord's Table as part of their worship. Why? Because Jesus instituted it. He asked us as his followers to celebrate communion. He instituted on the night that he was betrayed. 
It's seen by both Protestants and Catholics as a sacrament. That's kind of a big word. <laughs> uh, sacrament is just simply something we practice regularly, some kind of a ritual or a rite that we practice regularly that we consider to be part of our worship. Catholics recognize seven sacraments. Protestants recognize two Baptism and the Lord's Supper, clearly what God has instituted and asked us to do, but the Lord's Supper is always part of that. So we've all been taking it for a long time, right? We do it monthly here at Cole. But I think many of us don't really understand it or haven't thought through maybe some of the implications, and especially when you think about what Val just read, which is... uh, Be careful you don't take it in an unworthy manner or you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. As we'll see in the passage as it goes on, some were sick in Corinth and some had even died because they had taken the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So we better figure it out, right? (laughs) This is significant. So how can we rightly honor the Lord's table when we gather together like we will this morning to take it. Well, that's our topic today. So pray with me and we'll look at the scripture together. Lord, thank you that you have called us to regularly take communion together. But Lord, it's something we need to understand well. And so we ask that your spirit would lead us into this text this morning that you'd speak to us through it, that you'd help us understand really what it means to take it in a worthy manner, not an unworthy manner. We want to please you and worship you properly in this. We want to honor you. So may we, through our time this morning, learn to honor the Lord's Supper together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first section of this passage is Paul's description of how the church in Corinth was dishonoring the Lord's Supper. Paul's really angry here. I don't know if you noticed that. I don't praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. He's angry. He's really upset about what they are doing. They are doing great damage to one another. And they're despising the church of God. They're despising the people of God, he says, by how you're taking the Lord's table together. So he confronts them about it. So what's going on that's so upsetting to Paul? Well, the communion table, that's a term we often use, or we use the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, etc. But communion is a good name for it because it's a community event where we commune with the Lord and we commune with one another. It should be a place where everybody is seen as part of the community together. It should be a place where we are completely equal. There are no divisions between rich and poor, male, female, slave and free, new believer, old believer, young, old, Whatever your racial background, whatever your language, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you come together and gather around communion, the Lord's table, everybody gets a seat at this meal. Everybody 
gets the head seat in a sense. We're, we're all just as important as one another. We all come together as equals. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's been well said. There's no higher place for anyone, pastor, priest, or anyone else. We're all equal at the foot of the cross, and we are all equal at the communion table. That is God's plan. Even if there's some struggles and divisions, etc. elsewhere, this place, when we gather around the table, should be a place where all should feel welcome. And in the early church, they had something, they called it the love feast. The book of Jude tells us about that, where, where they gathered together and they would have a big potluck. <laughs> Generally, once a week, from what we can understand, they'd have a church potluck. They would gather in a home because that's where they met for church anyway. They didn't have churches. They had met in homes and they would have this potluck and they would all gather together and share everything they'd brought and have this wonderful time of sharing and celebrating the Lord's Supper near the end of the meal. There's some great descriptions in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4 that give you a hint of really what was going on in this early church. Acts 2 verse 46 says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were having these wonderful, joyful meals together where they were taking communion and celebrating their new life in Christ. It was awesome. And it says they were in favor with all the people. The world was watching. These wonderful love feasts they were having together. In chapter 4 of Acts, it says this, and the congregation, verse 32, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. Beautiful time of gathering together and those who were poor and didn't have much shared equally in all that was going on. It was a beautiful time. An early church historian, Henry Gwatkin, says this, Within their own limits, they had solved, the early church had solved almost by the way, the social problem which baffled Rome and baffles Europe still. They had lifted woman to a rightful place, restored the dignity of labor, abolished begging, and drawn the sting of slavery. The secret of the revolution is that the selfishness of race and class was forgotten in the supper of the Lord. That in this meal that we come to celebrate together, all those distinctions were gone. We're all sinners forgiven by grace. And we gather together as absolute equals. But apparently what was happening in Corinth and why Paul is so upset is that the church would come together for these love feasts and they would meet in the homes of the wealthy because those are the bigger homes. That's where the likely place you'd have church. We've excavated some of these homes in Corinth and you'd walk in through the gate and there'd be a good-sized courtyard and then you'd walk into the main house and in this house there'd be a dining room, 
along with the sitting room and so forth. Well, it appears that the wealthy were coming together early. I mean, they had more leisure time. They would come together. They would bring all the fine things they wanted to feast on. They would gather together and have a huge feast in the dining room. And then the slaves, the poor, the, the laborers, those who'd been working all day, finally, when they showed up, they were seated in the courtyard and they were left to share whatever they could bring. And the wealthy were even getting drunk. This is a reflection of what actually was going on in the culture of Corinth. We know that around the temples, there were these huge feasts, drunken feasts that were going on and there would be these celebrations that would happen and apparently the wealthy were just reflecting their culture by having their own thing and leaving the poor to themselves. Nothing left when the poor showed up. Well, Paul uses strong words to condemn these practices. He calls them divisions or factions in my translation. The words literally are schisms in the Greek or heresies. Now, the word heresy doesn't mean a doctrinal error. What it means is something that divides people. These schisms were happening because of what they were doing in eating in this way. They were essentially creating cliques in the body of Christ. Distinctions between the rich and the poor. They were dividing the church into groups, into the haves and the have-nots. Remember, the church should be the one place in society where there are no cliques, no divisions in those ways. Clicks based on income or homes or background or race or language or appearance or anything else. But it was happening in Corinth. And I think it happens too often for us. It's so hard for us, isn't it? I mean, isn't it hard not to judge people by appearance and to divide them and shame them somehow? I've told this story before, but it's, it's just appropriate. I was going golfing with a friend here from Cole and there were the two of us so they matched us up with a couple of other guys and so we're heading out to the course to play a round of golf and I looked at one of the other guys we were matched up with and he had shaved head, earring, a number of tattoos, baggy shorts, hanging low, etc. And, and I remember looking at him and thinking, this guy really needs the Lord. Then I started talking to him, and uh, as we shared, as we talked, he was a believer. In fact, he was running a ministry at another church in town. As someone came up to me afterwards when I told this story once, he said, yeah, and that guy was probably thinking, that guy really needs the Lord. <laughs> when you look at other people, what do you make judgments according to? How do you create divisions in your mind between yourself and them? How do you in some way put them down? What are the things that you tune into? Is it the way they dress? Is it their skin color? Is it the way they talk? Is it if they have tattoos or dress in black or whatever it might be? 
What do you look at to make judgments of others? See, that's what was happening in Corinth, and Paul is angry. He's angry. Paul says, to do this, verse 22, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? When you do this, you despise the church of God. What does it mean to despise something? This word means to treat it as if it doesn't matter, as if it doesn't count, as if I don't, I don't even care about that. It's used in Matthew 18 where it says, if you despise, Jesus is talking, he says, if you despise one of these little ones of mine, it's better than a millstone be tied around your neck and you be thrown into the sea. Uh, to take lightly, to ignore, to treat as if they don't matter. And Paul says when we make those clicks and distinctions, we're taking this body that he created, this this place where there's love and care for one another, no matter what your background is, and you're despising it. You're despising the very body of Christ, he says, when we create those judgments and distinctions and live as though some are better and some are not as good. And he says it also shames those who have nothing. It treats that person as bad, shameful, with an attitude of superiority, acting like somehow I'm more valuable than you are. Such attitudes in the church, Paul says, are contemptible, reprehensible evil. And I, I think if we're honest, we're all guilty at times. So how does Paul challenge that thinking? How does he begin to move this church in Corinth into a different way of thinking about the Lord's Supper and about communion. Well, first he elevates their understanding. He wants to make very clear what this is all about so that as they approach the Lord's table, they won't do it by just kind of ignoring the real picture of what it's about and just party and be selfish. But he elevates it so that it will not be taken lightly. So what is the significance of the Lord's Supper here? He describes it. You've heard it many times. We often quote it when we take communion together. Let me just walk us through it a little bit. Verse 23, For I received, Paul says, from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Okay, Paul received this directly from Jesus. The words he's recording here probably are the first time this was actually recorded, though communion is recorded in the Gospels. The Gospels were probably written down later than the book of Corinth. These are the first actual recorded words of Jesus probably written and passed around as he describes this communion, this Lord's Supper. It says that on the night, Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed. Who betrayed Jesus? Judas. He immediately comes to mind, right? But think about it. Who really betrayed Jesus? Judas did. But what about all the apostles? They all abandoned Jesus that night. They all betrayed him. Peter denied him three times, the rock of the church. <laughs> he denied Jesus three times and ran away. All the apostles, all the disciples betrayed Jesus that night. And in a very real sense, we all betrayed him. I betrayed him. You betrayed him that night. But it was on that very night 
that Jesus sat at this Passover feast, and it was a Passover feast. Remember what the Passover meant. To the Jews, God said, celebrate this once a year as you come together to celebrate the exodus from Egypt when you had to slay a lamb and the blood was put on the doorposts, on the lintels of the house so that the angel of death would pass over you. You deserved, uh, you would have died otherwise, but the blood covered you. And so that's obviously very symbolic of Jesus about to go to the cross the next day and his blood covers us. And so the communion is a picture of that. It's the same for us. Jesus' blood covers us. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, broke the bread, and said, this is my body. Now there's probably are no words in Scripture that have been more argued over than those four words. Throughout church history, it's been argued and argued and argued, what does that mean? The Catholics say it literally means it becomes the host, they call it. It becomes the body, literal body of Jesus and the literal blood of Jesus. Well, then the Lutherans came along and said, no, it's not, it's, it's, it's not transubstantiation. It isn't that it gets transformed. It's consubstantiation. Jesus is in it, with it. Wars have been fought over that difference. <laughs> And others have said, well, it's the very real presence there. And, and we come from an evangelical tradition and say, well, it's just symbolic. Well, clearly, Jesus is speaking figuratively here. Uh, he, he's standing in his own body and he's holding bread and he says, this is my body. He, he's not speaking literally because he is still in his body, okay? And he's holding bread, but he's speaking figuratively. He wants us to see it and how that bread represents his body. Jesus often spoke figuratively. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. Is Jesus literally the gate? No, but figuratively, he is the way in, isn't he? It's a beautiful picture. And here, to say this is my body, it's figurative, clearly. That's clear, clearly the language. But... I think we as evangelicals sometimes miss the boat because we minimize what this really means. Now again, as I said, I married into a Catholic family. My mother-in-law for a time was, uh, had a ministry since Vatican II. It used to be the, only the priests could give communion, the Eucharist in the Catholic Church. But after Vatican II, they created these lay ministers who could take the host take the elements to shut-ins so that they could celebrate the Eucharist as well. Well, my mother-in-law was commissioned as one. And I remember her telling me shortly after she started doing that, she would go to people and give them the elements so they could celebrate communion in their homes. A wonderful thing. But she came to me and she said, I, I just remember driving the first time I was going and I was thinking, there on the seat next to me, was Jesus. And I watched my mother-in-law when she was going through difficult times in her family, when her kids were hurting. She would go to the Mass every day because she needed to have enough 
Jesus to handle the difficulties she was facing. And I will confess that I've, I was very critical of what she was doing. I thought, well, that's, Jesus isn't on the seat next to you. He's everywhere, right? And, and that's true. And that's true. But I've come to appreciate her perspective to some degree, especially studying this text. I've come to think there's something good about seeing how these elements represent Jesus to us in a very physical and real way. Jesus is invisible, yes, but, but there's something about these elements that when we take communion that reflect Jesus to us in a powerful way. And Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Luke says, which is given for you. Sometimes when you say communion, people say, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now it's true, one time I said that and someone came up to me and said, hey, that's wrong because not a bone of Jesus was broken. That was a prophecy and it's true. Not a bone of Jesus's was broken. But Isaiah 52, 53 says he was crushed for our iniquities. He was marred more than any man. So to say this bread represents his body which was broken for you may be bad anatomy, but it's great theology. It may be bad anatomy, but it's great theology because Jesus was broken for us. He was crushed for our iniquities in a very real spiritual sense. He was marred more than any man. So he says... This bread is to be a picture of my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Why does he emphasize the new covenant? Well, any good Jew, anybody who knew the Old Testament would say, ah, there's several passages in the Old Testament that talk about this new covenant. Probably the primary one is Jeremiah 31, where it says, a new covenant I will make with my people. Not like the old covenant, which they broke, which was based on law and obedience. You had to obey the law. And, but it looks forward to a day, Jeremiah 31. It says there will be a day when I will plant my spirit in, their, in my people's hearts. And the whole foundation, he says, Jeremiah 31, 34 says, will be forgiveness of sins. It looks forward to this day when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted the new covenant. What is a covenant? It's a relationship. And he says, there's a whole new way to relating, of relating to God now. It's not based on the old covenant. It's not based on your obedience. It's based on Jesus' death on the cross so that you have forgiveness of sin. Now we obey because we're forgiven, not to earn forgiveness. And that is a whole different way of living. And so Jesus says, I want you to do this regularly. I want you to take the cup. And every time you take the cup, I want you to remember this new relationship you have with God that's based completely on forgiveness, based on what Jesus did, not on what we do. And the blood reminds us we're washed clean, totally forgiven. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because we're so forgetful. We so easily slip back into the old covenant. 
trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's forgiveness. And so he says, celebrate communion regularly because I want you to remember the whole basis for your life in God is forgiveness based on the blood which washes you clean. And in this passage, he mentions three reasons for communion. Number one, it's a remembrance of Jesus so that we might never forget what's most important about the Christian life. We need to be reminded regularly. So take communion regularly. It doesn't say how often to take it. We do it once a month. Many traditions do it once a week. Uh, You can go to a Catholic church pretty much every day and take Mass if you want. But the important thing is that you remember what Jesus did and in dying and by implication rising again. He conquered sin and death. He brought you forgiveness. And so never, ever forget. Remember. Secondly, he says, when you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death. It's interesting that that word proclaim is a word that's used for preaching. There's something that happens when you take the elements that in a sense proclaims to one another and to the entire world the truth of what Jesus did. He died for us. So we celebrate it. We do this together and it's an act of proclamation. And then finally, he says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion also is an act of anticipation. Anticipating Jesus' coming again. You see, Jesus physically came to earth once, 2,000 years ago. He will come to earth again. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. But what communion does is it celebrates both his first coming and his second coming. And acknowledges that, yes, Jesus came and he is coming again. The commentator F.F. Bruce says, communion is actually a prophetic action. We're prophesying that Jesus is coming and we are looking forward to that day. And we can't wait. (laughs) So think with me a little bit about this. So the Lord's table, communion, celebrates the two greatest events in all of history the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, both in which Jesus enters our world, our physical, material world, and appears here, the two greatest events in history, so that in the present, when we take communion, we always live in the light of those two events. Jesus came, Jesus is coming again. Communion helps us live in light of those events. And I'm struck how God asked us in communion. I mean, he could have said, you know, say these words and just end with that or whatever. But in this act of communion, he asks us to engage all five of our senses. You ever thought about that? It's a very physical event when we take communion together. You you see the elements and you see the body of Christ gathered together. You hear the word spoken. You touch the bread and the cup. You smell the the bread 
You, you smell the juice as you're about to take it, and then you taste the bread, and you taste the, the juice. Uh, Gerald Sitzer says, he asked the question, how can material creatures like you and I understand spiritual reality? Partly through imagination. God gave us a good imagination so we could imagine spiritual reality. But also through this physical act of communion. It's not just mental, but our whole beings are engaged when we take communion together. The incarnation when Jesus became a man was physical. So is communion. It reminds us that Jesus was a real living person and he will come again. There are real physical elements to it. And Jesus is here when we take communion together. A friend of mine, Doug Goins, relates just some things that communion teaches us. The bread reminds us that we're new creatures with newness of life, newness of heart. The bread reminds us that Christ wants to nourish us spiritually every day of our life. It reminds us that we have common identity, a unity in Jesus Christ because we participate in His body. And the cup, the shed blood, reminds us we've been redeemed, bought back from the slavery of sin. It reminds us that we're covered by the blood of Christ. Propitiation has turned aside the wrath of God. We have nothing more to be ashamed of. We are fully clothed now in the righteousness of Christ. And finally, the cup reminds us that we've been reconciled to other people and to God himself. We don't have to live alone. This amazing act of communion that Jesus says, celebrate this, connects all of history and all of God's people together in one simple act. Pretty amazing. God knew what he was doing. So what's the proper attitude then when we come together and take communion? Because Paul goes on to say, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and so doing eat. What, what does it mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? If it leads to sickness or death, we, we should figure this out. Now, I used to think, I better make sure I'm all fessed up, right? I better make sure I've got all my sins lined out and I've confessed all those to Jesus. Now, that's not a bad thing to do, but I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about here. Kenneth Bailey puts it this way, the only believer who is unworthy to receive the Holy Communion is the person who thinks he or she is worthy to receive it. You see, the point is, we're all sinners, and that's why we take communion together, because it's a reminder that we need His forgiveness every moment of every day, and we gratefully receive it. But how does Paul describe it in this, these verses? Notice what he says in verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly, or acknowledge the body rightly or discern the body rightly what body is he talking about well most commentators say he's really talking about two different things here he's talking about the fact that these elements represent the body of Christ and that he died for me and they represent the fellowship 
the body of Christ, in other words, the community. And it's important, he says, if you're going to take it in a worthy manner that you keep those things in mind. This represents Jesus and it makes us one in Christ with all other believers. So, in other words, to do it in an unworthy manner is to ignore the fact this really represents Jesus and to act in an unloving way towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? He said, hey, if you're going to the altar with an offering and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go reconcile with your brother and then come and worship. It's a reminder to get right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the passage ends this way. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. The word for wait for there, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, really is used in Koine Greek primarily to talk about a word of welcome or invitation. I think this is his final exhortation to them and to us. It's a word of hospitality, to receive someone as a guest. Paul is saying, make sure everyone who comes into your fellowship, when you're gathering around the Lord's table, make sure everyone feels not just tolerated, but welcomed as an equal part of the family of God. So the proper attitude, examine yourself. Am I recognizing that this is Christ and focus on what he did for me? And am I right in my relationships with others? And am I welcoming others in worship so they feel equally honored as guests? I'm glad we don't break into social groups when we have communion. We all gather together. We aren't like Corinth in that sense. But there are some challenges here that I just want to leave with you, some questions. Do we honor the significance of what Jesus did for us each time we take communion? Do we make sure our relationships with others are good and healthy before we take communion? That's part of the challenge here. And do we have our own kinds of cliques when we gather in the body? Do we only hang out with those who are like us or make us feel comfortable? Do we look down on others because they're different socially, mentally, Racially, economically? If so, Paul says you're headed for discipline. And do we truly act with hospitality toward those who are different from us, the poor, the homeless, those with tattoos, singles, etc., who walk through those doors? Do they not just feel tolerated, but do they feel welcomed, appreciated, and loved? I think that's the challenge of this passage for us. Let me pray and then we'll take the Lord's table together. Gracious Lord, we do thank you for giving us this very physical way of remembering, of taking bread and juice and tasting them, feeling them, so that we'll remember that you are real and your forgiveness is real and that you've created us into one body together to love one another well. You've created this new society 
of the body of Christ. And so, Lord, as we take communion now, we thank you, we give you praise for your love, for your forgiveness. And we do recognize this representing your body and your blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'd like uh, just to have a few moments of silence as we pass out the bread. And let this be a time where you do examine your heart. And in particular, ask if there's somebody in your, in your heart you need to forgive. Some relationship that needs to be made right. And maybe you will need to pass by the elements this time until you can do what you can to make that relationship right. I think otherwise you may be taking the cup in an unworthy manner. We'll pass out the bread and then we'll all take it together. One of the things I like about how we pass the plate and you serve one another, it's a reminder that we all serve one another in this, that we are a community together, dependent on one another as we look together at the life of Christ. So Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, this is my body which is given for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me, Christ's body. After supper, Jesus, on that same night, took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This means you have a whole new relationship with God based on forgiveness forever. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, he says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Christ's blood shed for you. Let's stand together as we're dismissed. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, as we go from here, may we go as your people, united in heart and spirit because of what you have done for us. Thank you for your death. Thank you for communion, which reminds us to celebrate you every day, every minute. And we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God.